to day three of our retreat. I hope that by now you feel a little settled. Hopefully you've you found your routine as you're kind of really dedicating time to cultivate kind, loving awareness. And um, I'm coming all the way here from the Netherlands to you. And I wanna kind of name a few things that might happen also during the guided meditation that I would love to invite you into for about 30 minutes. And that is, it's a special day where in Dutch, we say April doet wat hij wil, which means April does what it wants, but it rhymes in Dutch. And our April today here started sunny and then it changed. It got really windy and then hail came down and some what we call wet snow. And now it's sunny again. And the trailer I'm in, <laughs> what happens sometimes is when um, the sun is shining on it, it'll expand a little bit. So maybe during practice, and you might be tuning into sounds, you hear like a lot of sounds. I'm not sure how well um, the sound is being canceled out. And you also might kind of really tune into change with me as the sun might change and then you might hear the hail on top of our aluminum roof. I just wanted to let you know that you might hear these sounds and sometimes it's just helpful that perception can kick in like, oh yeah, Bart's in the trailer. These are the trailer sounds, right? And I also just wanna pause for a moment with you and kind of a deep bow to you, to your practice and to your diligence. For in the midst of wherever you are, creating time for these sessions, creating time for you know, self-guided practice during this retreat. It can be very helpful, the beginning of a sitting or a walking period, before actually really allowing the whole system to settle, to first kind of contemplate your diligence. Even if you've just sat down or decided to walk. You might remember those last words the Buddha offered. Keep practicing diligently. Kind of seeing like maybe really giving you some more conviction um, to keep going. And that it can be helpful to recollect that. There's a, a beautiful description how the Buddha describes this quality of diligence in the scriptures. And it's like this, he says, just as the footprints of all living beings that can walk fit into the footprint of the elephant and that the elephant's footprint is declared to be the chief among them with respect to size, so too, is diligence chief among all wholesome states. I just want to invite you to pause for a moment and 
see if it's possible to recollect this wholesome energy to keep showing up. What happens in the body? If you quite deliberately, intentionally recollect these moments of showing up, of courage and wise effort, and Roxanne talked about last night. Today's meditation. I'd love to invite you into adding an important element in your practice if it feels suitable to you. And thus far, what we've been practicing mostly is being mindful of the content of experience. Very specifically, when we do this technique of mental noting, we really get clear and recognize accurately, oh, fear is here or joy is present. There's concentration. There's not knowing, right? Or when we connect and anchor awareness, the breath, bodily sensations or sounds. We really can become intimate with that experience and know it. And this next guided meditation, from time to time, I also want to invite you to, you could say, attune awareness to how that experience is changing. It's as if you also become aware of the process of experience, the process of impermanence, of change happening moment to moment. And there's one line that I find very helpful as like a, like a teeny mantra. It's four words. Keep calmly knowing change. I got these words from a book by the Venerable Bhikkhu Analyo when he wrote a book on the four foundations of mindfulness or in Pali, the Satipatthana Sutta. In our teacher training, we were invited to really study it 
And when I found out it was a PhD dissertation, I was like, let me look at the conclusion first. It's a pretty big book. And there I found, you know, a very creative way from Miku Nalio of kind of boiling it down into like four key elements that are kind of running through all the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness. And so keep has that element of continuity of practice, has that element of diligence to start again and again, over and over again, knowing you're never too late for the present moment. Keep. Calmly is that invitation to see if you can receive the experience as best as you can. Meeting it with curiosity, meeting it with care, with compassion. So keep calmly. The knowing is awareness or mindfulness itself. Really seeing clearly, feeling clearly, right? And the fourth, change. Keep calmly knowing change. So really from more of a moment to moment felt sense perspective, tuning into how experiences coming and going. And to really see what that does when you kind of sometimes shift from knowing the object of mindfulness and then to turn to how is that object changing, coming and going. It can be very helpful to support harmonizing ourselves with this natural law that's unfolding moment to moment. And just see what that invitation might look like for you today during our guided meditation. And after the guided meditation, there will be a period of um, question and responses. And I'll just go over some of your questions and I'm just going to pause with you and, and respond. And so again, a warm welcome. And see if you can find a comfortable position that's both alert, relaxed. Check if you want to orient yourself in the space you're in. Notice if you found your balance in your posture. Not too loose, not too tight. 
Checking what you would like to do with your eyes. Perhaps starting with this question, is there awareness? The knowing. And the answer is yes. No, you're mindful. Is it helpful to start with this framework? There is a body. Listening deeply to how the body speaks to you. Is it possible to soften body parts, like the belly, the mask of the face? Or loosen the grip of the teeth, the lips, the hands? There is a body. So we can know there's a bodily, body with bodily sensations. Is it possible to notice how these sensations appear and disappear, changing? the tingling in the fingers,
or the movement of the body breathing. Keep calmly knowing change. This body is sensitive to sounds. You can know hearing. What's it like to become interested? and attuned to how the sounds come and go. Sounds that appear and disappear in your space. And the sounds that are coming through from my space. Possible to hold on to a sound. What's that experience like of knowing change? Is there resistance to it? And Sometimes it can feel uncomfortable. Is it easeful? Or receptivity? Keep calmly knowing change.
What would it be like to feel the body breathe? Breathing, knowing you're breathing. Simply letting the body breathe by itself. It knows how to do so. Also perfectly fine when you become aware of it, you're doing it. Breathe and know you're breathing. And this invitation again to see what it's like to attune to the changing nature of the breath. The waves of the breath are coming in and out like the waves of the ocean do. What's it like in this moment to keep calmly knowing change, this breathing body? Perhaps you've already explored also the state of mind. There is a mind. Can you know 
What's the state of it? Does it feel peaceful or restless? Many thoughts, few thoughts. Concentrated, distracted. Is your mind state changing? Or does it feel quite stable? Absolutely no rush. Never too late for the present moment. You're on retreat. You can also know whether thinking is present. There is thinking. Word thoughts, image thoughts. How are they changing? Quickly, slowly. Keep calmly, knowing change. Is there awareness?
what's the quality of it right now? For about 20 minutes of formal practice. Does it feel ongoing? Does it have momentum? I feel it's interrupted sometimes by planning, restless thoughts, feeling fidgety. I want to invite you to see if you can support the moment-to-moment awareness in this right now, in this very present moment. Is it helpful to anchor awareness, the breath, the sounds? No, is there a settled back, open awareness possible? There's some continuity. I'm going to offer a period of time of silence without guidance. Where we can, some, from time to time, check is there awareness? Asking, what's it knowing? And then, too, if you like, Check how is it changing, exploring to keep calmly knowing change.
is their awareness. What's it knowing? How is what's being known changing? Keep calmly knowing change. Perhaps taking your time to pause and maybe start to know how awareness can also include experiences externally. And getting a sense of the space you're in and maybe opening your eyes, noticing seeing. Also checking if you're still comfortable in the position you're in. You might want to change it a little bit or give yourself an intuitive stretch. And even in the midst of maybe doing this or sitting quite still, change is happening. Is it helpful to attune to it? What I'd like to offer now is some reflections on questions and insights that you've shared with us through the email. And you can still do so via practice at dharma.org. And um, it's too many. We can do all of them. But sometimes there's a few questions with a similar theme. So we still hope that we can address as many things as possible that were coming up for you. I also want to see if you can, in this practice of me responding, also really stay closely connected to the body. Right now, maybe just noticing if you can feel points of contact, Checking if it's possible in this moment to feel the body, how it speaks, 
but also at the same time opening up to this the sounds of this voice and also including the visuals if you decide also to watch the video but you could also just listen whatever works for you not really an invitation to continue your practice even also when there's more content coming and then to notice when you hear a question or my response how is it landing just noticing the felt sense of that as well and i just want to go over a few questions with you I've been wondering about working with proliferation in life and formal sitting, and particularly what's right or wise effort in this regard. Is it best to just remain mindful of papancha, this proliferation of mind, or to more actively redirect the, the activity toward an anchor? For me, this is a pretty subtle situation particularly noticing the difference between mindfully noticing proliferation and being caught up in it. Big difference. And also how renunciation plays into this question. I'd really appreciate some feedback as how you work with the pancha in your practice and in your lives. And the first thing that I've noticed for myself when I was contemplating this important question, was at the end, uh, the verb work was used. How do you work with papancha? And as a non-English, non-native English speaker, <laughs> who hasn't been practicing a lot of English lately, um, I found it quite interesting when I am in New York and other places in America, how often that word is used of work. Like I remember once being in a restaurant with my wife and the person who was waiting on us came and said, are you finished working on this? I remember us looking at one another going, in Dutch, we don't work on our food. <laughs> and the reason I'm sharing this is because just with the word desire, it can, you know, mean like with craving for becoming and pleasure and just this wholesome aspiration, right? And the same thing with work. Like how, how might you be using that work, that word in your practice? And I found it very helpful to sometimes switch it. And you've heard Roxanne and Joseph do it too with the word play. It has a different flavor sometimes, playing meditation playing with the pancha. Because I've studied quite a number of kids, you know, I have a seven-year-old, when they play, they're dedicated, diligent, not afraid to make mistakes, and they kind of keep at it <laughs> diligently. So that's, that's one thing that came to mind that I would love to share. And I think, you know, in this description, it's so helpful if you can to pause and recognize, oh, this is papancha. This is 
I call it sometimes the racing mind. It's kind of cool if you can actually use the poly, because it might not have all these connotations. And see if you can just be with that flow. And then actually doing that practice of keep calmly knowing chains if you can. And just notice how quickly the thoughts come and go. They're kind of like bubbles when it's raining on the lake. Appear and disappear, appear and disappear. However, as also it was skillfully in that question, we might get lost in the content of all the proliferating thoughts. When you notice that that keeps happening, that can be aware, you can be aware of that. And then it can be very helpful to decide, hmm, maybe it's better, as was in the question, to redirect mindfulness to an anchor to the body. Maybe remembering that advice the Buddha gave when there's restlessness. Most likely there'll be a lot of thinking or worry. Maybe reconnecting with the body breathing. Or if you're outside, reconnecting with just seeing the leaves rustle of a tree or tuning the sounds. When you do that, that's kind of a form of renouncing our clinging to constantly being in the content world. Most of the times when we're in the content world, we forget to be mindful, whether we're thinking internally or even when we're speaking and listening. And so it can be so helpful to pause from time to time and accurately name, oh, papancha is happening. And to find a balance, when can I kind of explore it? And when do I get lost in it and it's not so helpful and redirect the mind? And then the invitation to find a balance. Is it possible for a regular layperson practitioner to experience intense, prolonged physical pain without suffering? When I deal with chronic pain due to spinal alignment issues, and it can get very intense. I see that when I wish for things to be different, that I get stuck in self-pity and I'm clearly adding to my suffering. But it seems to me just being present to the pain is its own kind of suffering. What am I missing? I think there's just so much insight in that question. I just wanna pause for a moment. And as you're listening right now, just notice how that lands. That maybe you too are experiencing like chronic pain or knowing someone who does. Is it possible to meet this with compassion? And this is not easy to be with. The body sometimes can force us to be with immense pain. 
you want to approach if you're up for it and if it doesn't feel too overwhelming it could just be maybe for a moment just like sometimes just one step at a time or one breath at a time can i be with it now and if you feel like there's space for it And then you could investigate a little bit. How is the mind relating? What's the attitude of mind? And see if you can become a little active in your practice. Is there, like you, like was mentioned, self-pity? Oh, that can be known. Is there maybe aversion and hatred to it? It can be known as well. And I'm just asking yourself, can I receive in this moment? Maybe just for one. And maybe even a step further, can I allow the pain to unfold just for a few moments? And to know when you're trying this and doing this, that it's kind of, this is a manifestation of compassion. And really kind of gently exploring maybe other aspects so you're not so locked into the pain itself. Also get to know, oh, there's this, there's that. But there's also this intention to be there compassionately. It can be of great support. And then just like with Papancha, if it feels like it's too overwhelming for you, is it possible to redirect awareness to another experience unfolding in this very moment? And the question it talked about sending kindness to yourself or wishing it to be different. If it doesn't work for yourself, what you could also do in your wishes is to see if you can very actively wish it for other beings. Wishing it for other dear ones. So I'd like to pause for a moment. And for everyone who's listening right now, I wanna invite you if you can kind of hold the person who's asking this question in your heart. Maybe also holding other people, maybe including yourself with chronic pain. Just sending kind wishes to this community member right now. May you hold this pain with compassion. May you be free from suffering. This is also you can do individually when you feel like you really need some support, some compassion and you're not feeling it. And picturing dear ones who really want the best for you to share their wishes, 
to send them to you and receive them. This next question is about how does a Buddhist be an instrument of peace? How does a lone Buddhist do this? You're mixing again with people and that's possible soon again. While there is an absence of Sangha community, my community is my canary. I'm old enough to remember better days of social cohesion long ago. I'm multicultural. I'm a child of differing political parties, religions, ethnicities. And I take refuge in my breath. I can stand alone. And the social complexities baffle me. And I just really want to pause and see how these words land. I also feel what it's like if these were your words, what it's like to hear them out loud right now through another being. This is what it's like to be human right now. And now when I read this reflection what came to mind is I was touched. And when I was feeling that sense of touch, and I'm feeling it right now too, I remembered what Joseph shared about Deepama, who just by her presence really had a profound impact on her community. And then my mind went from Deepama to Mother Teresa. And kind of as a response to this question and this reflection, I just want to share some words from Mother Teresa and just see how they land. I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. Just one. Just one. And so you begin, I begin. I picked up one person. And maybe if I didn't pick that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only one drop in the ocean. But if I didn't put that drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you. Same thing in your family. Same thing in the community where you live. Just begin. One. 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 I really in this question, really feel that sense of being able to take refuge and be an island on oneself. When I read, I can take refuge in my breath. I can stand alone. And also the realness of sharing with us the social complexities baffle me. And then I also really appreciate 
bringing in your canary as community. Really kind of making the sense of community as wide and inclusive as possible, also including the animals. You know what it's like to just take care of that one being, taking refuge in their presence. So maybe just being an instrument, but taking it one step at a time. The more we protect ourselves with kind awareness, will also be a protection for others. This question is for Bart. I like relational dharma, which you refer to. And I've been stumbling through such practice actually. But often what happens when I'm grounded in the moment and aware of my body sensations and then pause, like in difficult moments when the atmosphere is tense in the office, I can feel. I'm aware, but I freeze since the right speech and the right action doesn't come to me. And perhaps it takes practice. Isn't, isn't it's the right recipe? but it hasn't worked. And I love how it's in these things. I don't know how you call them in English. <laughs> it hasn't worked so well for me yet. And I'm a leader and people are impatient with my pauses. I can so relate to that question. <laughs> in the beginning, when I started doing relational meditation practice, the one that I do and teach a lot, it's called Insight Dialogue. My wife, Chantal, would say, are you pausing right now? And it didn't feel authentic. It, it, you're right, it does take some practice, and our dear ones probably might pick it up. You know who my favorite pauser is, if that's even a word? Obama. When he speaks, and, you know, for me as a non-native English speaker, sometimes it's difficult English, but then he quite often just, stop speaking for a while. And that pause might be the pause for him, and I'm assuming, to recollect, you know, what, what would be the next thing to say. But it's also offering the gift of pausing for the listener. And I think when we do that, and it'll become authentic after a while, we're also being of great benefit for other people and other beings. It kind of also breaks the momentum of so much content. And the pausing doesn't even necessarily have to mean that you stop whatever you're doing, like listening or speaking. Because even right now, can you still hear this voice and maybe even see this being moving and feel your body? And when you remember to feel the body in the midst of listening, you're pausing in a way, you're kind of remembering, oh yeah, there's the body, there's hearing, there's part. The same thing after practice can happen in speech. And what's really, for me, what I found interesting is that after a while, after practice, we can also then attune again to change. 
like the keep calmly knowing change, but then we're attuning to it, like all the words and images that might arise. And when we're not mindful, they just kind of just flow out of us. But when we're really mindful also in our speech, there's some room for kind of really being quite creative. I remember one comment, and we might not get to that, like, I'm an artist, and if I'm getting so mindful, will I lose my creativity? Maybe it's kind of like the opposite. When we can really be in the moment and speak from the tip of it, being protected by awareness, we kind of stop that idea of speaking from a place of agenda or in our listening already kind of thinking what to say next, just by this constant like attuning to change, whether the content is coming externally to us or we're speaking. So I think there's a real benefit besides practicing insight meditation that's directed internally and in a lot of silence happening to also explore formal relational practices just to deepen um, the sense of being able to be aware in the complexity the social complexities the relational complexities of life and you're right it does take practice (laughs) I've been doing a meditation technique I learned from Bhikkhu Analyo, who's the the author of that book where I got Keep Calmly Knowing Change from. I've learned this meditation technique from Analyo a year ago, working with the Brahma Viharas, which are the four heart qualities of loving kindness, compassion, mutual joy, and equanimity and enriching them with the enlightenment factors, which are another mind states that really support waking up, like mindfulness, investigation, effort. And the question is, should I continue with this as my practice during sittings for this retreat, or should I go back to insight practice for this retreat? Or might it be best to do both, perhaps, and vary the sittings? I think it's, really helpful sometimes to um in dutch we say look in other people's kitchens um where you really you know open yourself to other kinds of practices and see how they do their cooking um but it's also really important to really becoming um an expert, if you will, with a practice that is suitable for you. And stick to it for a while, really get to know it. Because I remember in my earlier days when I was going into several kitchens, what would happen in my practice is I would start really with this intention to practice the noting, the naming, but I also already knew the practice of loving kindness, sending wishes, kind wishes. And then when I, sometimes I would see myself then going like, oh, this is too dry, this boredom, agitation. Well, let me be kind to myself. And I started wishing, may I be happy, may I be concentrated, 
that wasn't so helpful. So I would really, maybe in the guided meditations, maybe being open to what's being offered to see if that works. You're kind of sniffing in that kitchen if it feels new, or maybe it doesn't, but we haven't done it for a while. See how it lands again. But in your self-directed practice during the rest of the day, I would really see if you can set an intention for like, I'm going to do this practice now. Really stick to it for the length of your practice, whether it's 15 minutes, whether it's a whole day, or maybe when it's for the rest of the retreat. And so that's that's really up to you. But I would stick to the one that you've kind of landed on and you've had your intention on. And then keep checking, you know, what's the most important thing is what the Buddha kept pointing to is this idea of is there mindfulness that's continuous so that there's clear knowing, continuous mindfulness. So that could be an indicator like how the practice is unfolding. I'm struggling. And so I say in the meditation, there's a body struggling. And the heart, the heartbeat is pounding. And I hear the thought that this heartbeat is pounding. I pause and I say, there's a body recognizing this internal struggle. And the pounding heartbeat never left. And I gently put my hand on it. I cried a bit. And this heartbeat was loud for 25 minutes. I recognized it and I met it and followed Bart's instructions. Did I fail at the meditation? Just want to really pause just to notice how these words are landing for you right now. There's so much clarity in the description of this experience. There's so much honesty in it. So that last question, did I fail at the meditation? Now, when I read that the first time, this mind went, oh, maybe there's doubt. Doubt. And in the same way, when I was reading, I was naming, I was also having a perception of, oh, there's a lot of compassion a lot of compassion in the way you've described your experiences. And what I've noticed for in my own practice that I sometimes forget to note that compassion is actually happening within me. Therefore, it can be so helpful to sometimes formally practice phrases of compassion like we've doing in the evenings that Roxanne has been leading with kindness. Because compassion is 
kindness in action. There is a meeting of suffering. There's the crying, and then the heart, and the hand touching the heart. Is an act of compassion. Suffering is being known. Kind action has been taken from that place. So I really want to encourage you to sometimes very actively, when there is a lot of suffering and you see, for example, there's crying or a hand being put on your heart, can that be seen as compassion? And what's coming to this mind as a response also is a memory. When I was teaching meditation in a detention center in Brooklyn, juvenile detention center, and our topic was compassion. And I invited the group of um, young women uh, to see if we could use these phrases. And then one person stopped. She said, not for me. I don't deserve it. I don't want to do this. And then she put me on the spot. She said, as a matter of fact, I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to be compassionate to myself anymore because I don't deserve it. And then she said, give me one example where I might still be compassionate. And I paused and I said, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, I felt cold hands and cold arms. And it was the summer, but the air conditioner is always really intense in these facilities in the summer. And so I asked her, is it also as cold here during the night as it is now? And she said, yeah, everyone nodded. Do you sometimes then, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and your arm is cold? Yeah, what do you do? I asked her. She said, I'm going to tuck myself in. And said, and that little gesture, now that we've been reflecting on compassion, would that be compassionate for you? Would, would you kind of frame it as compassion? Because we've been, we've been practicing with this noting technique as well. And she looked at me and she says, oh, maybe. Yeah. So really... Sometimes we also need the support of another to see clear what's happening. And so I'm just really also appreciating you sharing this question. And this last question, like, did I fail at the meditation? From my perception, not at all. You did not fail. And it's pausing for a moment. Just noticing being touched. The next question. There's a craving to share this practice with others. How can I practice not craving also this, even though it's good craving. Thank you.
my first response was, what a great intention. You know, I can, I can relate. I had the same intention years ago. It might be interesting to investigate like what's, what's motivating, you know, what, what are my intentions? So that you can get really clear. Is it a craving for becoming where you expect something? Is it more like an aspiration? Like, oh, I feel like I'm touched and maybe I can share something from a place that has really moved me. Excuse me. And if you have this intention of maybe sharing these teachings, you could start with trying it out with friends or family members. And if it, then it really feels good because the sometimes the thought of kind of sharing this can really be wholesome and, you know, like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I've had a lot of trainings to teach meditation. And then I've seen people in the trainings going like, mm, not so much for me. <laughs> You know, it's very different. And so how it happened for me is that I was able to find an organization that was, and it still is, offering mindfulness-based practices to youth. And I could start as an apprentice and just shadow. And also got a lot of training on how to do this. So that could be another thing to explore, like, is there maybe an organization that I can be embedded in? And then when I started, oh, my audience was young people. If you ever want very honest feedback, offer the practice to young people, they'll tell you. Um, yeah. Let's see the time. Okay. My question is, is there a relationship between the papanchas and the hindrances? Because it seems that desire and aversion arise under craving and worry and doubt under conceit. And I understand that noting that the noting is a creative process and that the selection of categories like how to note is a personal choice. But I'm interested in the relationship here. Well, I love the creativity in this question. And what's coming to mind for me when I hear this question is there's a strong manifestation of investigation. And another question you might remember if someone talked about enlightenment factors. Investigation of experiences of dhammas is an enlightenment factor. They kind of build from one on top of the other and they work together in a beautiful way. They are like mind states and mental activities that steer us towards being awake, and the first one being mindfulness. 
even right now, is there awareness? What's it knowing? What can happen, inspired by that, is a sense of curiosity that we kind of feel in this question, investigation. How does this work? What's, how is it manifesting, right? That can shift into getting a sense of energy, courage, virya. That often can lead into a sense of feeling joyful, like, oh, this flows. And then joy can condition a sense of being at ease. And ease, tranquility can be a condition for the arising of focus, of concentration. And that can lead again to a sense of equanimity, balanced mindedness. And those seven factors of enlightenment such a support that we can kind of use from time to time and see if they're in balance. It's really important when you're noticing there's this sense of creativity and kind of like investigation going on. But what's helpful, the word investigation sometimes implies also a lot of analyzing. So if you feel like you're in this curiosity, like in this question, I found it helpful to use the words, what's happening right now? So kind of note, what is it? What's being known? How is it manifesting? Let's say a hindrance of worry. How is it manifesting in the body? How is it manifesting in the mind? Maybe with a lot of thinking. And then maybe also investigating how is the mind relating, like we reflected on with chronic pain. A lot of thinking. Then you're still investigating, but you're staying in the moment, in the present moment's experience. And that can be very helpful. Sometimes we also go into the why am I feeling this question, just in practice and in general, and it's an important question. But in practice, it can quite often lead into more thinking. And so maybe the why question is sometimes you know, better in other circumstances. And so in your investigation, staying within what's happening, how is it manifesting, how is the mind relating? And then, of course, you can definitely play like, oh, there's this, let's say there is, as you mentioned in your question, uh, aversion happening, wanting happening. And because I've been studying the Dharma and hearing the teachings, we might not only see, oh, this is aversion or craving, but maybe also sometimes we'll go, this is under that heading of craving, one tendency. And so the more we study and reflect on the Buddhist teachings, all of a sudden terms might arise that you can use, even the word papancha. And so, and then you're still very much in the moment, kind of like, oh, 
this is a helpful frame right now because it supports even a bigger understanding. And so I really want to invite you to play. And to me, that's, you know, how you've kind of categorized that would work for me too. Just checking the time. I just want to pause as well for a moment. <clears throat> Hello. I had great difficulty finding love and kindness during yesterday's evening meditation session. I felt restless and judgmental towards myself. Do you have any tips on how to welcome more love and kindness into my practice and focus my mind more on the positive energy? I think this is again a very a question and an experience I've, I've heard and felt for myself many times. I think one of the things that is very helpful is that, especially when it comes to meta practice, we can have some creativity. And sometimes we teach it from a perspective of these classical commentaries. And then once one is invited to start first with oneself. And just like this young woman who was incarcerated in my class, maybe directing it to yourself might not be the natural first thing to do. And so you could also start with someone whom you know you really feel at ease with. Someone it's easy for you to be joyful for, or whom you can be yourself with. And be creative, it can be your canary. It could be pet. But sometimes starting with ourselves is the hardest place to begin. And then see if you can take it from there, if that, that opens anything. And also in meta practice, when very strong emotions come up, you know, maybe the kind response to them is also to acknowledge them. Like, oh, there's self-judgment. It feels rusty. The restlessness. Can you see that act of knowing it, receiving it as an expression of kindness? And then knowing you can start again at any time. Maybe calling upon this, this aspiration, this diligence. And just one step, one breath, one loving wish. My question is, as an Indian, I would translate the word sada or shraddha in Sanskrit to something close to devotion, commitment, faith? And what's the reason behind translating it into faith, trust, and confidence? It's an important question. And a difficult one for me to answer technically, because I don't, I'm not a native English speaker, nor a poly expert. 
I think, and this is an important thing to do, I think, when we hear words or teachings, see if we can connect with the felt sense of that word or the words. Like, what's the felt sense when you hear the word devotion? Dedication. Faith. find it also helpful when I really want to get a like a felt sense experience of new poly terms or new words in English for me to see them in their context and sometimes then the context gives more perception so that I can get a sense of oh this might be what's what one what's being pointed to pointed at I'm just pausing and I, I realized that sada, speaking of it in terms of its context, it's within the context of another list of five spiritual powers. These support us just like the seven factors of enlightenment, of awakening, and they're similar. The first one is sada, faith. Second one is energy, effort. The one in the middle is mindfulness and this concentration and wisdom. And in this teaching, we're kind of invited to balance them. And so when you hear the words sada and Pali, it kind of refers to also this energy that got us started on this path. Can you remember what triggered a sense of becoming interested in meditation or in the Buddhist teachings? Can you even recall a felt sense when you think about it? Or the faith that, or the sada to keep using the Pali that keeps you on this path? allows you to keep showing up diligently, the chief among all wholesome states. That energy, or the sada that eventually also kind of feels like, oh, I've kind of verified for myself, refuge in awareness is like a homecoming. I'm just naming that as an example. So then to me that it kind of also has an element of trust, trustingness, deep faith. And that from that energy, I feel committed, like yours, your um, um, translation, feeling devoted to keep doing this again and again. And so this this would be my suggestion, you know, when you hear a word and it's not really resonating and maybe just finding the context in which the word is is taught. 
Yeah, really kind of also getting that connection again of the felt sense, like what, evo what emotions are evoked? How does the body feel? And again, bringing in that sense of investigation that you can really do in the moment. And that you could also do relationally with other people. So maybe as a, just aware of the time, just as a way of closing, maybe just pause. Noticing if you can connect with the sense of sada, like I just talked about, what word fits the best for you in your language or what image maybe even. May this sada, this faith, or devotion, commitment, trust, or confidence be supporting you as we're moving into a period of self guided practice. May the fruits this practice be shared with all beings, excluding none, including ourselves. May there be peace. May there be peace. May there be Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.